John chapter number 7 is where we'll be at this morning. I ask you to be in prayer for me as I'm, I'm trying to preach. I know just in preparation this week, uh, uh, I feel like my brain has short-circuited, fighting off a cold and all these different things, and it just, uh, I'm, I make excuses, right? How about that? But anyway, uh, be in prayer uh, for these things. I, I want to be a blessing. I want to be a help to you. I want to... Uh, I want to be able to uh, point you to Jesus and help you to grow in your walk with him. And uh, that's my desire. And so with that, let's go ahead and uh, get started here in our uh, in our message today. And what we're doing, we're continuing in this series I've entitled Refocus. And as I've said, uh, every week since we started this, our goal, our intention in this is that we can see Jesus more clearly through the gospel accounts. It's kind of tear away all of the, the trappings and the, the extra uh, things that we have placed on him and just look and see who he is from his own word. Uh, last week, what we were looking at was that the, the disciples were arguing over who would be the greatest in Jesus' kingdom. And uh, they had already messed up several times. Uh, they, they Actually, it seems like they continue to do that. But yet they had this false notion that they were going to be something great. The pride within them was uh, seeking after greatness, but they were going about it all the wrong way. And so as they were arguing about who was going to be the greatest, Jesus puts them on the spot. He says, what were you arguing about? No one wants to tell him. And finally, he brings a child up to himself, and he begins teaching them about what he considers to be great. And as we look at his, uh, his lesson to his disciples, he said, first of all, if you're going to be great in my kingdom, you have to enter in as a child. Before you can be great in his kingdom, you have to be in his kingdom. That makes sense, doesn't it? And you enter in as a child by faith, humbly as a child. And then after we enter in, we continue in humility. Uh, it's not about us. We like to make it about us, but it's not. And then uh, we need to be watching our own lives that we don't cause others to stumble we need to be cutting off anything in our lives that is hindering us and causing us to stumble. And then we don't worry about what everyone else is doing. And we have this tendency toward uh, comparing and competitiveness. And he says, don't worry about all of that. Just continue to, to walk your walk with me. Don't be uh, worrying about what the, the person down the road is doing. Uh, we need to value what Jesus values. Uh, we place an importance on things that uh, ultimately has no value, it has no value outside of this earth that's going to pass away uh, whenever uh, whenever we're done here. And we esteem those things to be so valuable, but Jesus says value the things that he values. Uh, we need to be careful not to forget the, the price that he's paid for us, that he has uh, been merciful, that he has been forgiving to us, and that we should be showing the same mercy and grace to those around us as what he has shown us. And the last thing that we looked at last week was, I said, even cups of water count. He said that if we give a cup of cold water in his name, then we won't be without our rewards. That whenever we look at uh, the things that are great in the kingdom of God, we look at the big things, at the important things, at the visible and the flashy and the showy things. But Jesus says oftentimes the greatness comes in the, the, the small things, the imperceivable things, the things that we do uh, not to be noticed, not to be seen, but just to serve and just to uh, be a blessing, right? And so he said, if we want to be great, those are some things for us to keep in mind. And so as we continue today, I've attempted 
uh, in this series to go chronologically through Jesus' life and his ministry. And I don't know if you've ever attempted to do this and lay out a chronology throughout the Gospels, but it can be difficult. Each of the, each of the Gospel writers was writing to a different audience, writing for a different purpose, and they were emphasizing different things. Uh, some of them weren't even writing chronologically, they were writing more topically. And so as I'm trying to put this together and trying to, to kind of uh, see the flow of Jesus' ministry and where he was traveling from place to place, uh, I may get it wrong from time to time. Okay? And we're going to be in John's gospel today. And John has, in chapter number 6, revealed Judas as the betrayer. Okay? At the end of chapter 6, he says, Have not I chosen you twelve, and one of you is the devil. And it seems like from there, he goes straight toward uh, Jesus' final days and his basically last six months. And John focuses on what Jesus does around Judea and around Jerusalem. The other gospel writers include more of his Galilean ministry and uh, some of his teachings and some of his sermons and things that he is teaching to the multitudes outside of Jerusalem. All right? And so, like I said, I'm trying to kind of weave this together. But what we are doing today is uh, I want to give just a little bit of context before we dive into this passage. Okay? I want to give us just a little bit of context to know what the backdrop is for what's going on. Uh, in our passage today, and I know I haven't read it yet, we'll get there, okay? But in our passage today, uh, we're going to begin Jesus' last six months of ministry. Uh, he basically ministers for about three and a half years. This is the last half year. And it is kicked off by uh, Jesus going down to Jerusalem for the Feast of Tabernacles. And the Jewish calendar went from feast to feast. We looked at this a little bit in Sunday school with the Feast of the Passover, right? for those who were here. So it went from feast to feast. And the one that we're going to be looking at today is the Feast of the Tabernacles. And it was one of these three main feasts. And it required most of the Jewish men to go down to Jerusalem. And what the, the people would do is they flooded in. They would start building tabernacles. They would take uh, branches and brush and whatever and make little shelters for them to stay in. And they did that in a as a memorial of the time spent in the wilderness wandering as they were delivered from Egypt coming into the promised land. And so the Feast of the Tabernacles was a memorial of what God had done for them, how he had provided for them, how he had taken care of them, how he had led them. And so it remembered that, but it also recognized that he was continuing to provide for them. He was continuing to take care of them. And so the Feast of Tabernacles took place right around the time of year that we are now right around September to October. And the Jews operated on a lunar calendar, so it would, it would move around a little bit. But it's right around the same time as we are. It was at the time of the harvest, and they would be bringing their tithes, they'd be bringing offerings. And this was the most joyful of the feast, of the celebrations that they had. So everyone was coming, celebrating all that God had given them, celebrating all of the abundance that he had given them, and as they're coming into the city, they are eating, they are drinking, they are fellowshipping, they are catching up with people they hadn't seen for a long time, and they are celebrating God's goodness and provision to them. And so, good time, right? And so that's what's going on in this, uh, in this feast that uh, we're going to be looking at. And not only were they making their, their tabernacles, and by the way, the tabernacle was a picture of uh, God's presence with them. We find the tabernacle as the 
the children of Israel were traveling about the wilderness was where God's presence was amongst them. And so they're still remembering these things as they're dwelling in the tabernacles. But at, the, at this very time that we're at in Scripture now, God is actually dwelling in flesh amongst them. Jesus was there, God with us, right, Emmanuel. God had tabernacled amongst men. And so we see these, these parallels, these pictures that are uh, drawn throughout Scripture, throughout these feasts that God had instituted. On top of that, they had ceremonies that would go on throughout this week. I just want to give you a little bit of background, okay? Uh, they had ceremonies that would go on throughout this week. Every morning, the priests would get a golden pitcher. They would go to the Pool of Siloam. They would draw out water, and they would come into the temple, and they would pour it out at the base of the altar at the temple. And this was uh, remembering how God had brought forth the water out of the rock whenever Moses spoke to it, whenever he smote it, right? Not only that, though, but it was recognizing that God was continuing to provide the rains that were necessary to bring the harvests, right? And this will make a little bit more sense whenever it's during this feast that Jesus comes out to them and says, if any man thirst, let him come to me and drink of the water of life freely. That is the backdrop for that statement, is the things that was going on throughout that week. On top of that, they had a, a large torch, a large like a candelabra, candlestick, that was erected in the court of the women within the grounds of the temple. And they would have that lit at night, symbolizing where God dwelt with them as a pillar of fire by night and a pillar of cloud by day, right? Symbolizing God's presence. And this is the backdrop whenever Jesus came and said, I am the light of the world. Right? This is the things that was going on this week. But before all of this ever started, before all these different things that Jesus was going to do that was going to provoke the religious leaders, that was going to propel him toward the cross, we go all the way back to where we're at in John chapter number 7. And before he ever went to Jerusalem, he was facing some criticism before he ever started the journey. He was facing some adversaries, and he was facing those adversaries at home. And what we're going to find is his own brothers were the ones that were ridiculing him, the ones that were mocking him, the ones that didn't believe. Okay, so let's look here before he goes to this festival and see see what was going on. Uh, see what was going on at home, I guess I should say. So John chapter number seven, starting with verse number one. It says, "After these things, Jesus walked in Galilee, for he would not walk in Jewry." Because the Jews sought to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of tabernacles was at hand. His brethren therefore said unto him, Depart hence and go into Judea, that thy disciples also may see the, the works that thou doest. For there is no man that doeth anything in secret, that he himself seeketh to be known openly. If thou do these things, show thyself unto the world. For neither did his brethren believe him. Then Jesus said unto them, my time is not yet come, but your time is always ready. The world cannot hate you, but it hateth me, because I testify of it, that the works thereof are evil. Go ye up into this feast, I go not up yet unto this feast, for my time is not yet full come. When he had said these words unto them, he abode still in Galilee. But when his brethren were going up, then went he also up unto the feast, not openly, but as it were in secret. 
Then the Jews sought at the feast and said, Where is he? And there was much murmuring among the people concerning him. For some said, He is a good man. Others said, Nay, but he deceiveth the people. Howbeit no man spake openly of him for fear of the Jews. Now about the midst of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and taught. And the Jews marveled, saying, How knoweth this man letters, having never learned? Let's go ahead and stop there. And I know I've laid quite the introduction, but I still want to pray and ask God's blessings on this message today. So let's pray. Dear Lord, we come to you today once again. We thank you for your blessings. We thank you for your word. And we just ask you, Lord, that you would guide my thoughts and my speech today. Help me to say the things that are needful and helpful and accurate. I pray, Lord, that you and your Holy Spirit would apply them to the hearts and lives of the the people here. I pray, Lord, that you would help and encourage and strengthen. We thank you so much for all that you do. In Jesus' name I pray, and amen. So in the passage that we read, Jesus is preparing to go up to the Feast of the Tabernacles, and his brethren are provoking him. They are prompting him. Uh, It says here specifically that they still didn't believe. But could you imagine being one of Jesus' brothers? Could you imagine being raised up in the household with Jesus? Now, Jesus would have been the oldest one, but imagine being one of his brothers, and Jesus always does the right thing. Jesus never gets in trouble. Jesus is the golden child. Whenever there's anything that goes wrong in the house, no one looks at Jesus. No one uh, expects it to be him because they know that he is without sin. They've heard their entire lives that Jesus is special. They've heard about the the virgin birth. They've heard about the annunciation with uh, the angels and all of these things, and yet they don't believe. They are skeptical. They are cynical. They are probably a bit bitter, right, of being raised up in this household. I know even amongst my family, the the girls always uh, thought Emily got the better end of the treatment. They said Emily doesn't get in trouble as much. They said Emily is the favorite. I said, no, they just learned from your guys' mistakes. That's what I always told them. But there was always that little bit of hostility there and claim of favoritism, even in my house. Could you imagine if there was actually grounds for it whenever Jesus is the Son of God? How do you compete with that? And so they have watched Jesus go about, and he's doing miracles. He's got people following. For heaven's sakes, he's got disciples. None of them had disciples. You know, all of these things are going on, and so they are looking at this, and they are confused by Jesus, maybe a little offended by Jesus, and with all of this, they don't believe, and so they offer up here some criticism. They offer up some demands for Jesus, and I believe we can relate to this, not that we are uh, that closely related to God, but we sometimes misunderstand. We sometimes have our doubts. We have our confusion and we start making demands of God. Have you ever been there? Whether you did it openly, whether you did it publicly, whether you did it in prayer, whether you actually spoke it or whether it's just been in your heart, there are times that we have a similar attitude as what we find in Jesus' brother. We have this attitude toward the Lord. And I want to look at that today and pick out just a few of these things that we find in this passage, and hopefully get a better perspective about it, okay? And so the first thing that I see in this passage, as his brothers are looking at him and provoking him, 
is they demand that if he's going to do anything, that he does it now. Have you ever had that attitude with the Lord? Do it now. Do it now, right now. We want things to happen quickly. We want things to happen in a way that uh, satisfies our timeline, right? With the, the brothers here, they had seen for some 30 years, probably at this point, they had uh, seen the things that Jesus was doing. They had heard these promises. They had uh, heard all of these stories and different things. And the talk of him being a Messiah, of him being a deliverer, of him being a king. And they said, what are you waiting for? If you are the son of God, if you are who you're saying that you are, if you're going to deliver the people, if you're going to be the Messiah, why not do it now? They pointed to the Feast of the Tabernacles. They said, here is your opportunity. Do it now. And to bring that a little closer home for us, as we're looking at different things in our lives, we make demands to God, do it now. Whenever there's problems that arise in our lives, we want them fixed today. Whenever there is issues at the job, we want them fixed now. Whenever our money's not going so well, we want it fixed now, whenever we're struggling with sin in our lives, whenever it seems like things just aren't going the way that we want them to, God fix it now. Everybody with me? Yeah. That's how we do. We want it done right now. We want, if you're going to do anything, God, why not do it now? And we have it all figured out. We think that we know what's best. We want delivered from our problems. We want victory. We want security. We want help. Fix all these things and do it now. We treat God almost as if he's like a genie, don't we? And Jesus' response, whenever they said, do it now, in verse number six, it says, my time is not yet come. They said, do it now. Jesus says, not yet. Right? We don't like not yet. We're even more impatient than what Jesus' brothers were. Because we're used to instant gratification. We're used to things happening quickly. We're used to being able to receive things instantly, right? You go online to order something on Amazon, you get it tomorrow. We're used to things happening quickly, but God does not work quickly. God works according to his own timeline. He works according to his own timing. He has a plan. He has a purpose behind what he's doing. You look at all the examples in Scripture of things that God took his time to do. You go back to the story of Joseph. He's a good example. Whenever Joseph was in the pit, he wanted out now. Do you believe that? Mm -hmm. I don't think he was just down there like, okay, well, this is fine. I think he wanted out now. He's probably even praying, God, get me out of here. You ever prayed that prayer, God, get me out of here? He wanted out of the pit now. Then whenever he was a slave, he wanted out of slavery now. Whenever he was being lied about by Potiphar's wife, he wanted his name cleared now. Whenever he was in jail, he went it out now. Even whenever he was ministering to the butler and the baker, he says, whenever you get out of here, remember me, tell the Pharaoh about me so that I can get out of here now. We look at some other examples. Moses is a good example. Whenever he looked at his brother being mistreated, he went out and he slew the Egyptian because he said he believed that the Jews would recognize that he was a deliverer sent by God, right? He said, I'm going to deliver them now. And God decided to send him out to the backside of the desert for 40 years because God wanted him to have the heart of a shepherd, not the heart of a prince, right? And so he had to wait 40 years, but he wanted it done 
now. Abraham, whenever he received the promises of God, God says, you're going to have a son. And he says, okay, any time now would be good. But he made him wait for several years, didn't he? Many years. And so we see all these different occasions in Scripture where we want things to happen now. For those who have been here on Wednesday night, David's another good example. I never brought him up in the first service as well. But David, whenever he was anointed king, there was a long process that he had to go through from the time that he was anointed to the time that he stood or to the time that he sat on the throne. Right? And no doubt, all the way along through that process, he would have liked to have skipped ahead. He would have liked to have things happen now. But the truth of the matter is God is working things out according to his time. And there are so many things that we don't recognize, so many things that we don't know about, and that if things would happen according to our timeline, we wouldn't see the things that God is trying to bring about. If God would have delivered Joseph from the pit, he never would have sat on the throne, right? If David wouldn't have went through the process of having spears thrown at him and hiding in the caves and running from Saul, if he wouldn't have had to wait for that amount of time, he wouldn't have become the king that Israel needed. So many different things in our life, we don't realize that God is working through a process that God is taking time to develop, and we are wanting things to happen now. If Jesus would have done like his brothers tried to get him to, if he would have went right then and thrust himself upon the people of Israel and said, here I am, your Messiah, we would not have a Savior today because that wasn't according to God's timeline. Over and over, Jesus is saying, my time is not yet come. And he was doing all things according to the will of the Father, according to God's timeline, not man's. And so we have to be careful when we start making demands of God, whenever we start trying to get God to do things now, because it may short-circuit, it may shortcut the greater things and greater plans that God has that takes time to produce, right? The second thing that they said here, it's not just do it now, but they said do it my way. Do it my way. They looked at Jesus and the way that he was going about his ministry. And everybody has opinions, right? Everybody thinks that they know the best way to do things. And they were looking at Jesus' ministry and they said, if you are a Messiah, if you're going to be some great leader, why are you wasting your time in the wilderness? Why are you running around the region of Galilee? Why are you spending your time in the rural areas whenever all the action is in Jerusalem? Why are you going about and telling people, be quiet, don't tell anybody about these things? Why is it that you're performing these miracles in obscure locations? Why aren't you doing these things in public? Why aren't you doing them in Jerusalem? Why aren't you doing them whenever all the people are gathered? Here's your opportunity. This makes sense to us, right? And so not just do it now, do it my way. Do it in a way that makes sense to me. Too often in our lives, we have our plan. We have our script all written out nice and neat. We just want God to sign off on it. We want him to go along with our plans. We want him to do it in a way that makes sense to us. And a lot of times we're left scratching our head because the things that are going on in our lives, 
don't seem to be getting us any closer to the destination that we desire. The route that Jesus is taking us on doesn't seem to be the one that we would choose. And it confuses us. It doesn't make sense to us. And so we start making demands of God. God, I want you to do it now, and I want you to do it this way. I want you to sign off on my plan. We make it as if we know more than what God does, as if we are all-knowing and all-present, and that we can see all the different things that affect the decisions that we're making and the direction that we're going. And so we say, God, do it now. Do it my way. Make it make sense to me. And the truth of the matter is God's not doing it our way. He's doing it his way. Because his ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. He sees things that we don't understand, that we don't perceive. He sees all these different factors that are going in and affecting our lives that we have no control over. And he is factoring all of those things in to his plan. And he is uh, organizing, he is orchestrating a plan that works to get us where he wants us to be. If Jesus would have charged Jerusalem, if he would have presented himself as the king, if he would have demanded worship and allegiance and all these things that made sense to his brothers, we wouldn't have a savior. See, a cross didn't make sense to his brothers. A tomb didn't make sense to his brothers. It didn't make sense to most of the Jews, right? Whenever they were looking at Jesus, when they were looking, even the disciples, whenever they were looking at Jesus, they were saying, who's going to be greatest in your kingdom? At the same time that he was explaining to them, I'm going to be betrayed into the hands of sinful men, and I'm going to be crucified and abused, and I'm going to be buried, and on the third day I'm going to rise, and they're still looking for a throne. They're still looking for a crown, right? It didn't make sense to them, but God's way gave us a savior. Man's way would not have, right? See, God has greater plans. He has a greater design. He has purposes that we don't understand. And sometimes it takes the long route. Sometimes it takes uncomfortable steps. We had already talked about Joseph. We've already talked about David. But look at all the different steps that would not have made sense to those men. We talked about Abraham. Abraham would have wrung his hands saying, God, out of all people, why did you choose the guy with a barren wife that is old to have a child? And on top of all that, I was already old whenever you told me about it. You waited another 20 or 30 years before you brought it about. This doesn't make sense, God. Abraham started uh, trying to rationalize, trying to make it make sense to him. That ended up with Hagar. For Joseph... Whenever he had had his dreams and he had seen the, the sun, moon, and stars bowing down to him, when he had seen the sheaves bowing down to him, he says, one of these days I'm going to be worshipped. One of these days I'm going to be exalted. One of these days I'm going to have a place of prominence. And nowhere did it make sense that he was going to have to be imprisoned, be in slavery, be lied about, be persecuted, by, be mistreated all of those years for him to end up being second in command of Pharaoh. That's not the way that we would write it out. That's not the way that we would try to put things together. That's not the story that we would uh, fabricate, is it? But God's way works. Our way doesn't. 
And so we have to trust him with the process. We have to follow him in faith. We have to allow him to lead. And so his time and his way, not my time, not my way. The third thing that they demanded of him, do it obviously. Make it clear. We don't want any place for doubt. We don't want any place for skepticism. We want you to do it so that we can see it clear. Even the the religious leaders came to Jesus and they said, how long do you make us to doubt? If you be the son of God, tell us plainly, right? And they wanted Jesus to go down and to declare himself. Just say it all, make it clear, make it plain, make it undeniable. And in our lives, how often are we desiring at least, maybe not demanding, how long are we desiring the same thing? God, why does your will have to seem hidden? Why is it that whenever you're working and doing things that so often they they seem to be kind of in secret? They seem to be kind of covered up. They seem to be kind of questionable. If we had it our way, God would be working miraculously. There would be no question about it. This was of God. We want him to do signs and wonders and miracles and all these different things so that there is no question about it whatsoever. And we see that this is God that's doing this. There's religions, there's denominations that are built on this idea of the fantastic and the phenomenal. And this is what we are desiring, but it's usually not the way that God does things. Even whenever we're searching after God's will for our lives, we would like for God to lay out a road map. We'd like for there to be road signs. We'd like for him to write it out in the sky. Have you ever been there? I know there's been times I've been praying. I've been seeking God's will. I've been seeking his face. And it's like, God, just make it clear. Just make it plain. But here's the problem with that. If God does everything clear and plain and shows us all that, where is faith? The Bible tells us that without faith, it is impossible to please him. It tells us that we walk by faith, not by sight. God wants our relationship with him to be one of faith. And if we are constantly desiring everything to be laid out plain and clear in a way that we can understand, in a way that's unquestionable, in a way that uh, satisfies all of our demands, it's going to cause us to not have to walk by faith. It's going to cause us to not be trusting in him, to not be growing, not to be following him. Because guess what? If God would show you his will, if he would just put out a road map, if he would just say, okay, Peter, this is the way your life is going to go. Here's your start. Here's your finish. Here's all the stops along the way. You'd say, okay, God, and you push him to the side and then you'll do it. Right? And this isn't the way that God operates. God gives us what we need, when we need it, as much as we need, right? Just to take the next step. The Bible says that the steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord. It doesn't say the journey. It doesn't say the entire trip. It says the steps of a good man. And so what we have there is God is ordering step by step by step. We want it to all be laid out. We want it to be clear. We want there to be signs and miracles and uh, all these wonders and all these things, just showing it and making it to where we don't have to trust God, to where we don't have to follow by faith, but where we can just do it 
ourselves. And God says, I don't work that way. And so we say, do it now. He says, not yet. We say, do it my way. He says, no, I want to do it God's way. We say, do it obviously. And he says, no, you have to follow by faith. Then the final thing. They said, do it to convince me. We want to be convinced, right? If you look at verse number four, about halfway through the verse, there is a key word. It says, if. If. You ever tell God if? If you love me. If you really cared. You ever been there? Yeah. If. They said, if thou doest, if thou do these things, show thyself to the world. Their challenge to him, prove yourself. Convince me. If you're really who you say you are, it shouldn't be difficult for you to do these things to convince me. And a lot of times we get this place in our lives where we are putting God to the test. We're wanting more proof. We're wanting more evidence, right? Whenever, uh, whenever the Jews came to him and they said, show us a sign. And he says, an evil and adulterous generation seeketh a sign, but there shall be no sign given it except for the sign of Jonas. And as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the well, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Remember that? And so he said, I'm not going to give you a sign. I'm not going to give you any more evidence except for my death, burial, and resurrection. Thankfully for his brothers, after Jesus resurrects from the dead, they do finally believe. James that wrote the book of James was Jesus' brother. He was one of the skeptics. He was one of the mockers. Ended up being the pastor of the Jerusalem church. Ended up giving his life for the cause of Christ in the end. But here's the thing. Whenever we are looking to be convinced, whenever we are putting Jesus to the test, whenever we are looking at him and we are saying, if you prove yourself to me and then I'll follow you. Isn't that our attitude? Make it make sense. Do it in my time. Do it the way that I think it should be done. Show me, prove it to me, and then I will consider following you. And that is not the way that God works. Because instead of, uh, instead of prove yourself and then I'll follow, he tells us, follow me and then I'll prove myself. We get it backward, don't we? And this is what the Lord requires for us. If we put our faith and trust in him, if we begin to follow him as we follow him, he will prove himself. We will see him come through time after time after time. We will see him take care of us. We'll see him order our steps. We'll see that his plans are greater than our plans. His timing beats out our timing. The way that he orders things is much better than the way that we do. And he proves himself as we follow him. But if we sit back with our arms crossed and say, I'm not going to follow you, I'm not going to trust you, I'm not going to serve you until you meet my demands, we're going to miss out on the Savior. We're going to miss out on his will. We're going to miss out on his plans. He is not going to order our steps as long as we're sitting back and demanding him to prove himself. See, we serve a great God. We serve a God who loves us who loves us so much that he gave his life for us, that paid our sin debt with his blood. 
that has going to prepare a place for us and is coming again to receive us unto himself. We serve a great God. But yet we are like Jesus' brothers. And we begin to be skeptical. We begin to be cynical. We start making demands of God. We start questioning God. We start doubting God. We start criticizing God. And something that I'm thankful about is that God still loves us. Isn't that crazy? He still loves us. He's still patient with us. He's still forgiving of us. He doesn't, honestly, if I had been God, I wouldn't put up with me. Right? But he does. And see, I know we come back to this, this thought over and over again of the fact that we need to trust God. We need to follow God. It might seem that I'm very repetitive in bringing this out, but honestly, this is the message that we need to get across. I cover it as frequently as the scripture does. And this is what we need to know as Christians is that God loves us, God is in control, and he can be trusted. If you don't learn anything else besides this by coming to this church, you are saved by grace through faith. It is not of anything that you have done, it is all of what he has done. But after you are saved, you still follow in faith. You trust him from the beginning to the end. And that's what I want us to know is that God can be trusted. We get so caught up in so many other things. We get our eyes off of him. We start uh, going our own way, our own path. And what each, of, each and every one of us need to be reminded of is God has a timing. He has a plan. He has a way that he does things, and it is best. We're not always going to understand. We're not always going to see it. And it's not always going to make sense at the front. But if we will put our faith in him and follow him, he will make it all come together. He will work all things together for our good. And he will prove himself faithful time and time and time again. So that's my encouragement for you today. Whenever you want to demand God does things now and that he does it your way, that he does it so clearly that it's unquestionable, whenever you demand that he proves himself to you, take yourself off of the throne. Take yourself off that position of leadership that you've climbed yourself up to and let God be God. Trust him. Trust him to guide you. Trust him to do what is best in your life, whether it makes sense or not. So that is my challenge to you today. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Lord, we come to you today. Thank you for your many blessings. And we do thank you so much, Lord, for this time that we spent in your word today. Lord, we can relate to, uh, we can relate to your brothers and their doubts and their demands and all these things. And sometimes we, in our flesh, allow these things to take over. But Lord, help us, Lord, to get our eyes off of ourselves and get our eyes on you and allow you to be God, for you are God and we are not. And Lord, just help us that we may trust you to work out your perfect will in your perfect timing, your perfect way. And Lord, we thank you and we do love you and we praise you. And all these things I pray in Jesus' name and amen.